Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. You know, fun TV fact, this was conceived as a TV series, but look who's getting the last laugh tonight. <laughs> so we'll do a little reading and a Q&A, but first I thought I would um, talk a little bit about why I wrote this book and how I wrote this book. And for those of you who know me, you might know that I'm really obsessed with fairness in kind of an unhealthy way. You know, whether it's like a parking spot dispute or the last slice of pizza, that's something I'm think about a little too much in my life. And a few years ago, I was reading um, a, New York, a New Yorker article about genetic engineering, and my jaw had just dropped the entire time. I was like, these different countries have different rules and regulations about genetic engineering. You know, there's going to be 20, 30 years in the future where a whole generation of people in different countries is going to have different, you know, what the new babies are going to have different skills. And I was like, this is going to be so unfair. I thought, us, us normal people, you know, in this room, in this world right now, we're going to have to do something about these, like, whippersnappers, or we're just going to be wiped off the face of the earth. You know, it's going to be like a Make America Great situation for us old people. Then I thought about the kids who would be born like this and realized they would have done nothing wrong. You know, they shouldn't be persecuted or have any restrictions on their life just because they were born with these advantages. So I thought a lot about this, and I could not figure out a fair solution about what we should do about genetic engineering. And that's when I thought, well, I think I really need to write about this. And the more I wrote about it, the more I realized that, you know, this is just gonna be another gigantic issue of inequality of our time. Obviously, we have a lot of them already, and we're well aware of what's going on presently, but there is something coming in our lifetime which we are not prepared for, and it really is gonna be a world of the haves and the have-nots of who has access to this technology. So I thought I would um, try to help start the proverbial conversation about this issue. You guys look like you're ready to converse about it. <laughs> and hopefully these books give a little insight and a little preparation about what we should do about it and hopefully handle it a little less violently than the characters in the book when, when this really hits our society. So without further ado, I will do a little reading from the second book. I assume all of you here have read the first book or pretended to at read the first book. But just to give some context, it is about um hijack. Hijack. <laughs> it is about a group of teenagers who are genetically engineered and this um big movement grows in this country. It's called the equality movement that starts to restrict their rights. You know, government passes laws that who you can marry, what jobs they can have, they have to start living in camps. So the main character, Cody, she's a 17-year-old girl, she is now ensconced at the beginning of this new book um, up in the mountain hideaway of the most radical of the genetically engineered kids. Those are called the ones. And she is meeting for the first time over dinner the leader of that movement who happens to be an adult named Edith Vale. Edith Vale is kind of the Edward Snowden of this book. She released a list of all of the ones out to society and kind of set the whole story in motion by targeting these people. So Cody is meeting Edith for the first time and she just found out that Edith is in fact a genetically engineered person and was really the first one ever in this country. So I'll pick it up from there. Cody leaned back and regarded Edith with a discerning eye for the first time. 
Yes, Edith, Edith was in her 40s, but now Cody could see the genetic engineering at work. The perfect facial symmetry, the thick hair, the dark green eyes, the athletic build. Cody would have noticed it sooner, but she had never before seen a one so old. That meant Edith wasn't subject to the guessing game that everyone played with members of Cody's generation. When I was a little kid, my parents kept everything a secret, Edith said. But as I grew up, the debate over genetic engineering exploded. We finally had the ability to do it easily. Some people wanted to explore it, others wanted it banned. The program at the National Institutes of Health was set in motion as a compromise of sorts. And there I was, the only genetically engineered teenager. Cody took all this in with amazement. Edith Vale was the first genetically modified baby. It sounded crazy, but somehow it also seemed to fit with her growing picture of Edith. And Cody couldn't help but feel a pang of sympathy. So how did you find out, Cody asked. She thought back to her own moments of discovery. Her mother explaining that she was a one, and later the shattering moment of identity theft when Cody discovered it was all a lie. My parents told me when I was around your age and I freaked out, Edith said. Because we had to keep it a secret, I knew that being modified was a threat to the rest of society. I understood why, of course, but I began to sense how ugly it might get. So by myself, I set the wheels in motion for what I called the Locust Project. Cody noticed some of the ones around the table nodding with pride. Then Edith locked eyes with her. Locusts mature underground and out of sight for, six, for 17 years until they finally emerge and nurture the next generation. So that's what I did. I went to college and took all the right classes and applied for all the right jobs. I saw the rise of the equality movement and I knew I might be the only hope for stopping it. Eventually I saw an angle at the National Security Agency. I began to work there and I kept my head down and my nose clean. I started getting promotions. I got higher clearance. And I knew, somewhere in that database, there was a list of every genetically engineered baby ever born. Edith paused, clearly overwhelmed at the memory of her long struggle. Cody could sense all the other ones were locked in on their conversation, and even the clanking of utensils had gone silent. Somehow the soft yellow light from the lamps all seemed to shine on Edith. Cody snuck a glance at Kai, who was as rapt as everyone else. Then Edith gathered herself. You asked me earlier why I released the list? Cody nodded. Progress is never earned without a fight, Cody. It's finally time for the ones to join this battle and get our freedom back. The list was my wake-up call to all the other locusts. Cody felt chills creep down her back. It was thrilling to learn that she and the new weathermen were not just a desperate ragtag militia thrown together by chance. They were actually part of a grand plan. While the world was playing checkers over the issue of genetic engineering, Edith Vale had snuck off with a chessboard and set up the pieces for her own game. So that brings us to you now, Edith said, focusing on Cody. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to save the ones from annihilation? Are you ready to swear to put ones first? Yes, I am, Cody said firmly. But first, I need to rescue James from the detention camp. Cody immediately bristled at the thought of the government-operated internment camp, one of many around the country where 1% of her generation was being held against their will. This wasn't a secret or some kind of outlier. This had somehow became an accepted reality in America. Citizens knew about it, politicians approved it, companies built it. Of course, the government portrayed the camps as comfortable havens where the ones would be held only temporarily. But that was a contradiction in and of itself. No place where innocent people were held against their will could ever be comfortable or justified. We don't have personal agendas here, Cody. The camps are obviously a problem, but we can't solve that right now. That's not the plan, Edith said. 
That's my plan, Cody said. She looked at Kai across the table. His glare implored her to stand down. Edith narrowed her eyes at Cody. There's only one plan here. I've been working on it for decades and everyone at this table agrees with it. We are going to fight for our freedom and take our rightful spot in this world. You can either join us or leave. Before Cody could answer, Kai cleared his throat and jumped in. I think what Cody means is that she wants to focus on freeing the camps as soon as possible. She didn't mean to suggest, no, I meant right away, Cody said. She appreciated Kai sticking his neck out for her, but he wasn't going to change her mind, and now she just hoped he'd be quiet. Cody had come to the Ark to get help in liberating James. That wasn't up for debate. Cody, I think that's admirable, Edith said, but we can't help you. There are operations in place that are much more significant. We can't afford to jeopardize them. Cody realized this wasn't a debate for Edith either. She was never going to be won over by Cody's appeal to save a single specific one. Cody needed more than an argument. She needed a trump card. I'm not asking for your help. I'm insisting on it, Cody said, a plan beginning to take shape in her head. There were gasps from the ones around the table. Clearly no one talked to Edith Vale like this, let alone delivered an ultimatum. I'm here to make a deal, Cody continued. You have something I want, an armed team ready and able to raid the camps and free the ones inside. And I have something you want, let's trade. What do you have that I want, Edith asked skeptically. Cody was committed now, she had to keep going. So she put everything she had into her performance. You know that I was captured by the equality agents. You know that I was detained. You know that I spent time with Agent Norton. Lots of time. Edith nodded, still wary. Yes, I know all of that. Cody went on. And because of that experience, I know something about Agent Norton that can change this entire war. Something that can help us win. Something that you need to hear. Edith glared at Cody. What could you possibly know? Cody stared back at her and tried to speak as firmly as possible. Agent Norton is obsessed with you. I know exactly how she's going to catch you. I know the trap that she's laying for you. And I'm only going to tell you after you help me free James. As everyone else looked on in shock, Cody saw Edith do the calculation in her head, saw the desperate self-interest overwhelm her beautiful, genetically perfect face. Cody knew that she had Edith on the hook. The bluff had worked. Okay, thank you guys for listening. Noel, any questions from you or from the audience? Well, I was kind of curious to know um, how other young people have thought about this work. I mean, do they honestly feel that this is our future or the future of generation? You know, I, I have spoken to a few schools, and I, I think the fun thing is... um. They get in a debate right in front of me because I think the first thing they do is react like most of us and they say, yeah, it's inherently unfair for people to be born with advantages. And then someone else will mention, well, those people didn't choose the way they were born. And that really resonates with a lot of other things they've probably thought about. And they go, oh, yeah, what, what do we do about those kids? And I think they all land at a similar place as I do, which is we need really good regulation and... and how to pred and predict how this is going to happen, but we don't have that yet, so we're just hoping that happens. Um, a few of them, yeah. Why? I don't think I've been in a red state speaking about this. I will say, the book was was set in Shasta, California, and then 
during the election there were some crazy things happening in the Shasta High School where this thing was set where kids were coming in and antagonizing the immigrant students or the children of immigrants and it was really startling to see that the absurd you know, antagonism that I put in this book was happening in real life by teenagers against other teenagers. It's currently illegal though, right? Well, as I said, it's different in every country. The thing that really prompted me to get interested was that China and Russia, as you can imagine, is kind of like the Wild West. They don't really have regulations on it. And in the past year in America, there's been a lot of um, laws that are loosening up the regulations so that you can't necessarily um, genetically engineer um, an embryo that you plan to grow into a human being, but you can test it out on an embryo that you're willing to throw out. So you know, obviously, that's only one more step until someone either breaks the law or the law changes where it's happening to real babies. So you wrote the first book prior to the election. Did yes. The second book, where were you? during the process and anything changed based on... Yeah, no, I wrote the first book in what I would consider one of the most optimistic periods of my life in terms of what's going on politically. It was the end of... It was 2015, you know, Obama was cruising. I liked all the new laws. And I was writing the second book kind of disgusted during Trump's campaign about what was going on, but still totally dismissing that it was... Um, going to amount to anything after that November and I turned in a draft and then um, Trump got elected that November and I had to do a lot more work on my next draft because of what had happened in this country and the parallels that I saw the most clearly were definitely about immigration and about blaming children for something they didn't choose, also about the um, what to do about terrorism whether it's domestic or international and you know how much we should have kind of a military-industrial complex that is devoted to constantly sur surveillance and torturing people who get caught. So once I realized that that was the next four years of our reality, I went back and, and added some stuff. I'm curious, do you have to change the way that you write or, or how you write for younger people? Um, that's a good question. You know, I got in trouble doing this at my last release last year. I gave an honest answer and my editor yelled at me, but I will give the honest answer. My answer was that I didn't really change much except at the end of any important moment, knowing it was for a YA crowd, I would often add one more line to nail home the point I was trying to make, which was a little tough for me because I'd like to write with more subtlety. And I thought that I needed to do that just to, you know, there's 12 or 14 year olds reading this. I wanted to make sure they picked everything up. And then my editor said that is a big stigma of YA, and I should never admit that. <laughs> uh, forgetting the external experience going on in the country and in the world, um, this was obviously our second book. What was the experience from a um, it was definitely more of a challenge just because I think the most exciting part about starting a book is creating the world and the characters and often that is such a help in even driving the story so once all that was set up in book two and I didn't need to spend any time doing that it felt a little bit more plot heavy and I really had to focus myself on being like no expand the inner lives of these characters you know expand the world a little bit instead of just keeping the story going from you know point M to point Z so besides that it was definitely easier because I had 
done it once before, and I was like, oh my god, if you just plan this out as much as possible, you can actually get to the end of a book. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah, the, we, we sold it in a few other countries, but the main one is in France, and um, it's a big success story in France, and I think that there, um, I don't know why exactly, I not that familiar with French society, but I do know that um, their issues with immigration and terrorism are probably more profound and minute-to-minute -minute than anyone in America. And perhaps that's why the, the young people over there were more interested in kind of obsessing over this stuff than in America where so many of us really never get touched by that at all other than reading a headline. I think they're living it more in their daily lives, so maybe that's the reason. Um, I understand that there's sort of a genre of genetic modification sci-fi future books. Have you found any in your research or, or writing that you thought was particularly phenomenal? And I'd say the one that I inspired me the most is still Gattaca. A uh, really good movie. It's probably 20 years old at this point, but I kind of think of this book as um, a prequel to Gattaca, where Gattaca really shows the world after the point where genetic engineering has become totally commonplace and it is in the haves and have-nots. So I, I tried to jump into that period where what's it going to be like? I think we are going to be this weird generation that lived half of our lives with never conceiving of this and the second half of our lives it's going to be totally normal and that seemed like a cool area that hadn't really been explored in that genre. <laughs> Yes, there is a ton of good genetic modification. It's just that um, I don't know anyone actually trusts that we can go that step and not do the evil steps afterward. But I think everyone's really excited about this because you can eliminate genetic diseases. You can pretty much end a lot of suffering in the world from people who were born with crippling handicaps and who wouldn't want that. But on the other hand, if only certain people have access to that, that, that paints a, a dangerous picture to me. Um, I was wondering if you had any, uh, when you were a young adult, were there any foreign books that you read? And you were thinking about those when you were writing foreign adults? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's funny. I, I talked about this a little bit, and I think when we were growing up, the, the genre young adult did not exist. There were just books that had kids that were considered normal literature, like Lord of the Flies and Catcher in the Rye. The one I would say that made an impact on me, that, just because I've thought about it for while I was writing, is To Kill a Mockingbird, where it's just, it is for kids, but it is about kind of this universal issue of, of fairness, and it, it, you think about that a lot, yeah. I'm sorry, I missed this, so if you covered it, but just um, a question resonated with me. So what about the spiritual deprivation? Who's to say that a Flannery O'Connor suffering from lupus is not culturally enriching and benefiting the whole spirit of a, of a society? Who's to say that once we enter this privileged world of health that we're not culturally dead? I don't know. I'm not to say, and I don't think any individual is to say. Maybe that person's parents are to say. You know, if, if they hear from a doctor that your child will have this life if we don't do something or another life, maybe the parents have the right to, to change that. I do think the world will be... Um, 
lacking in experience and perspective if everyone is healthy. And I do think that people with you know handicaps or genetic diseases can add a perspective that the rest of us don't have. But certainly, um, I imagine many of them wish that that wasn't the case or it was an option for them. And so then that would bring me to probably more of the material. Who decides control? What is control? Well, I think the only hope we have is to have the government decide control. And that does not give me a lot of faith that it will be worked out correctly. I think if you leave it to the the market, it will very obviously only be accessible to rich people. And without the government getting involved that, you know, within a few generations, that would just be a totally different society. I don't know. I would have to guess the European Union just because they end up having so many people weigh in from many countries to kind of make their regulations. When it's just pe- uh, singular countries doing their own thing, I don't think that they can come to the best conclusion. Canada, perhaps? Is that, is that what you're looking for? Can, a Canadian in the audience? <laughs> The good news is for those who are planning on reading it, the, the story will end here. So no third book in this one. Um, I do like ex- exploring this because you end up creating these kind of accessible, entertaining ways to maybe talk about something that's um, more intellectual than the young people in this country would be talking about otherwise. And so those are subjects that I would like to keep talking about. And if this is a medium to do it, then yeah, I'd like to keep doing it. Anyone else? Last, last question. Netflix calls you. <laughs> I'm at the Emmys. I'm canceling the, the book. <laughs> oh. I think that's an audience question. I'm not, there might even be some casting people in here. <laughs> I mean, I've always said young Jennifer Lawrence, but that's just Hunger Games, you know. So I don't know who is the, the young Jennifer Lawrence and anyone? Kieran and Shipka. Yeah. We'll take it. <laughs> All right. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So wasn't he just terrific? Yeah. It was terrific. Yay. Yay. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you will get an encore. You can talk to him. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.